Welcome to this week's sermon from the Willoughby United Methodist Church. Well, good morning. We're glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Um, I just wanted to say this. Uh, we're, we're getting ready to start a new sermon series based on the book, um, Christmas is Not Your Birthday. Don't tell my son that because it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, but this week's, uh, this week's chapter is uh, Expect a Miracle. And all I can say is there was one football coach yesterday that believed that to be true. Amen? I won't say who, OH. Thank you. Yeah, we're glad you're here. And um, I, a couple weeks ago, I, I uh, officiated a funeral here. Um, and it was by the Coyne family, uh, the funeral home. And I got to meet Kevin Coyne, and, and we were talking after the service, and we went out uh, to go to the procession. I looked at his license plate, and his, he has a, a Go Blue uh, license plate holder, and it was upside down. And I got the giggles, and I said, I've never seen anybody support Ohio State that way. That's pretty cool. And he goes, well, I'm from Michigan. And I says, oh, okay. Uh, he goes, I take it you're not. I said, no, I'm a Buckeye. And uh, he, so we got to talking and everything. And, and of course, uh, just we, we just really hit it off. And, and uh, we were talking about how the, the fans can be so different. Like Michigan fans are very civil. They're actually courteous and nice. You laugh, but it's so true. Because my son and I went up there for an OSU-Michigan game at the big house a few years ago, and, um, like, we weren't attacked or anything. And Ohio State beat them. And, like, we were, we were flying. And I, <laughs> first few years of our marriage, we lived two miles north of OSU. And um, that's not the case when OSU play, plays Michigan down in Columbus. I mean, cars find themselves upside down and on fire, right? I mean... It's bad, right? So anyway, long story short, he, uh, he invited me over to the Wild Goose. He said, you ought to come over and we'll watch the game. It'll be, it'll be a hoot. It'll be... And I said, uh, oh, Kevin, I can't do that. He said, no, no, seriously, come. It'll be your, my invitation. You come. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm a pastor. He goes, what's that have to do with that? He says, during that day, my sanctification level goes way down. Because that's how much I get into the game. And if you don't know what my sanctification level is, that means like my purity level goes way down, right? Um, and he, he kind of chuckled and I says, uh, I says, maybe another year. But now I wish I would have taken him up on that. <laughs> I could have lived out that, that uh, what it's like to be a, a fan. So, so... I wanted to build upon what Mike Slaughter did. Mike Slaughter uses for, for his opening chapter um, a passage from Isaiah, chapter 7. Um, and I don't know if I... Oh, yeah. Chapter 7, verses uh, 14 and 15. And this is the passage he used to set up that, that chapter, Expect a Miracle. And it's, it reads this. Then Isaiah said... Hear now, you house of David, 
It is not enough to try the patience of humans. Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in preparing for today, I, I wanted to build upon what Mike did, but take it to the next level. Um, and I hope I did that. So if you would, take on a posture of prayer as we invite the Holy Spirit to come into this place. A gracious and loving God, we do anticipate the movement of your Spirit in this place to open our ears, our minds, and our hearts, to stir within us, to speak to us once more. May we hear the still, small voice of you. May the meditation of our hearts be pure and the words of my lips be, be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to utilize, I've got several favorite passages from the Bible, but I wanted to use one of my, one of my all-time favorites, um, which is, the, it comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And if you have your Bible with you, I'll give you a second to turn to it, if you're not already there. And I think we're going to get it up on the screen, too. But I'll be reading from the NRSV, and it reads this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And without Him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to te testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This is the very word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I'm not a history buff. I will say this about history, though. I will have to acknowledge that history books did make the best pillows in study hall because they were the thickest, right? That shows you how much I use them or how I utilize them. It's probably why I had to look up the name Everett, Edward Everett. Anybody know that name? Ha, ah, I'm not the only one. Oh, you do. Dana, God bless your soul. Man, you want to come up and talk about him? Okay. All right. So, Edward Everett, I had to look up his name for today. He was a pastor. He was a politician. He was a great orator of his time. He was the featured speaker at the dedication ceremony of the Soldiers National Cemetery in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I must be getting this right because Dana's agreeing with me all the, all the way. Four and a half months after, he was a guest speaker four and a half months after the Union soldiers defeated the Confederacy. 
He addressed the crowd for over two hours using over 13,000 words to dedicate the hallowed ground on which those gathered stood. It's a speech, aside from Dana, that nobody, my guess is, could recall. (laughs) I thought for sure I wouldn't have anybody who knew him. Anyway, right after Mr. Everett, Pastor Everett, sat down, President Abraham Lincoln stood up and shared in just ten sentences the lasting words that touched the heart of a nation forever. It changed the course of history, I might add. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. How many of you had to recite that? Right? I remember, it still gives me anxiety trying to recall that day. I'm going to pass it off to Dana now. <laughs> so, my guess is you know the rest of that speech. Ten short sentences. And I share that simply to say this I hope to be like President Lincoln this morning. Not that I'm going to change the course of history, but simply use less words in hopes of keeping you awake and offering something you can talk about and remember during the week. Now, I thought for sure that would get an amen. Yeah, I thought I lost you already. So as you well know, the opening scene of any movie is absolutely critical for capturing the audience's attention potentially offering an idea of where the storyline wishes to go or take its viewer. Most of us can tell within a few, few minutes whether we've wasted our time and hard-earned money or not. And it's invigorating when we get hooked right from the beginning, is it not? Okay, I can tell you that maybe you weren't hooked right from the beginning of my sermon, but we'll get there. There's one movie in particular that has consistently made every opening movie scene list you can imagine except for musicals. Star Wars, A New Hope. You know what I'm talking about? If you've seen it, you're able to recall the opening scene, a starlit backdrop with a prologue scrolling up the screen. It's setting the stage for the action to begin, as well As the last words vanishes off the screen, we're thrust into a far, far away galaxy where we can see a planet off in the distance. And before we can take a guess on which planet it might be, a rebellion spaceship enters from the lower right-hand corner of the screen, only to be followed, or chased rather, by what one can only describe as the largest battleship the human brain can imagine. It's so big it nearly covers the entire screen. Laser cannons blasting away and immediately the audience is drawn in and we find ourselves on the edge of our seats engaged in an epic battle. That is, before our eyes. The stage is set for the journey that we're about to embark on. The opening scene has done its job 
It's grabbed our attention and engaged us in a way that entices us to pay attention to the rest of the story that's about to unfold. Amen? In the same way, John has a daunting task ahead of him. He seeks to capture the attention of his audience in his gospel. He narrates the fourth gospel with an opening line which not only seeks to grab the attention of the diverse audience, but also draws them in due to the relational nature of the language that he is using or he chooses to use. Imagine being John in Ephesus. Jesus has been long gone, and you find yourself wanting to address two cultures, both Jew and Greek. John's not only addressing two different cultures, but he's also wanting to find common ground in order to relate to them in a way that will engage them and make them want to listen to the rest of the story. John's opening is a classic. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen? And Now, to the Jew, a word, or the word, was far more than just a mere sound. It was something that had an independent existence. It was something that actually did things. Professor John Patterson put it this way, the spoken word to the Hebrew was fearfully alive. Fearfully alive. It was a unit of energy charged with power. Think of it this way, it's like an arrow en route to its target, once released from the bow, it cannot be retrieved until it hits its mark. By nature, it has irreversible consequences. Take, for example, the Old Testament story where Isaac was deceived into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, it's found in Genesis. It's about these two brothers. They, they grew up, and they were twins. One was good, one was bad, and I'll let you figure out who. Um, but they, they had, well, I'm just going to give you a, a, little, a little idea of who, who they were. One was a mama's boy, and the other was a daddy's boy. One liked to hang around the tents and sew and cook and clean. And the other one, now I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to paint a picture here, but, but it's, you can look at, it's in the Bible, you can look it up. But the other one liked to go out and hunt, right? Now, the one that liked to hunt, he, he deserved the blessing. He, it was his right to receive the blessing from his father because he was the firstborn, if only by a minute or two, right? But his mom whispered into the ear of the other, and she said, you need to put on a costume. You need to deceive your father. You need to receive that blessing. And so he did. And he went before his father, who had failing eyesight, and, and he, he changed his voice, and he, and he was wearing some, some uh, fur, and, and he said, uh, this is your son. Esau, give me your blessing. And Isaac did. He spoke the blessing. And when Esau came from the woods to receive the blessing, his father began to weep. His father began to weep because he knew 
that the words had already left his mouth. It was a blessing that he couldn't retrieve, revoke, or reverse. It had already been given away. And that grieved both of them. Isaac could do nothing. He couldn't stop it, reverse it, or undo what had already been spoken. That is what the Hebrews believed in the power of word. It was unstoppable. And as much as it angered Esau and saddened Esau, Isaac, the word had gone out and began to act. And there was nothing anybody could do to stop it. And in the end, in the end of that story, there's, a, there's an amazing situation where reconciliation and forgiveness is extended. Expect a miracle, I say. They're found throughout the Bible. So action, the words, having action for the Jews, this was a very definition of a word, having action. And Isaac's words, once they had left his lips, could not be undone. And we can see it very clearly in the creation story, if we look hard enough, or not even that hard. At, the sta- at, one, st- at one point we read, and God said, or God spoke, and it was done. The words left his mouth and creation began. Again and again we get the idea of the creative acting dynamic word of God through the treasure of the Old Testament. Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord, the very heavens are made. Action. Psalm 107, verse 20 says this, He sent out His word and healed them. He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. Or how about this? So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, 11. So right off the bat, John has hooked his Jewish audience. And for his Greek audience, he's made a double impact. The Greek term for word is logos, which not only means word in the full Jewish sense of having action, but includes what the Greeks considered as reason. For John, it was the perfect bridge between two cultures. John knew all the great thinkers of his time in the Greek world kept these two ideas intertwined whenever they used logos. Reason, as John is using it, is describing the wisdom of God. So in essence, John is speaking the language of the Greeks and helping them to see and understand that Jesus is the very wisdom of God put into action. Did you pick that up? Jesus is the very wisdom of God put into action. And that the Logos was and is God. So Jesus is God's wisdom put into action. John has certainly set the stage for us in a clear and concise manner. Now, what, now that John has captured our attention and the attention of his audience, let's turn to the focus and focus at the matter of the heart. Let's discover who John claims Jesus to be. 
In the opening few verses, John introduces us to the two themes that he will use throughout his gospel. The themes are life and light. These two words, light and life, are the great basics that John builds upon throughout his entire gospel. Let's start with life. John's gospel begins and ends with life. Out of the gate, he starts with the description of who Jesus is. All things came into being through him, he says. And without, without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. Life. And as we move towards the end of the gospel, we see John's purpose for choosing his words so carefully. We see his hope and purpose being revealed as we read this from John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. In his witness, John chooses to use words of Jesus that reveals regret, yet penetrates the very heart of man at the same time. When he writes in John 5, 39 through 40, you search the scriptures, this is Jesus speaking here, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify on my behalf, he says. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It's a paradox. Despite our tendencies, Jesus speaks truth and he offers hope to us. In John 10.10 we read, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus claims to be our defender and keeper against those who try to snatch away our life. In John 10, 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Those sounds like words of hope to me. And finally, Jesus offers us direction when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Simply put, what Jesus offers is a life worth living, even beyond the point of death. As we come to understand God through John's gospel, it's, it's something opposite of destruction, something opposite of condemnation, something opposite of fear and pain and even death itself. John is now sharing with us Jesus, God's wisdom in action, for this very purpose, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. John's message and Jesus' invitation is not just life, but life with God himself. Life residing eternally with God. Now let's shift to John's second theme, the theme of light. For once we have believed in Jesus and allowed him access to our hearts, there's something that naturally, that naturally happens as we respond to his love. In John's gospel, Jesus is the light to all people. The function of John the Baptist 
as you may recall, was to point people to the light, which was Christ. And on two occasions, John 8, 12 and John 9, 5, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. Yet Jesus is unselfish and seeks to share this light, his light, with all people. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but it will have the light of light, the light of life. Now, this isn't in my notes, but I don't know about you, but has anybody ever tried to walk in the woods in the dark before? Strange things happen. Limbs just come out of nowhere and smack you in the face, right? More than one occasion has one tried to poke my eye out. So I wisened up in my seasoned age when I'm walking in the woods, I carry a flashlight. And when the batteries don't die, I can see, and I can see all the dangers, right? When we're walking in darkness, there's dangers that abound. But when we're walking in the light of Christ, we have a clear path. And there's three things that we need to know about the light that Jesus offers to us. Number one, the light in which Jesus offers brings order out of chaos. I want you to think back to the creation story. God is on the move, and as his spirit is hovering over the chaos of the darkness, and God speaks. Do you know what he says? Let there be light. Let there be light. And thus the beginning of order takes shape. It is the light of Christ which not only shines in the darkness, but it brings order out of chaos. Is there chaos in your life right now? I wonder. Is there, or, is there chaos in your life that the light of Christ can bring order to? Second, the light in which Jesus brings, it's a revealing light. Christ's light, revealing all that is hidden, suppressed, and buried. His light strips away the layers of dysfunction that seeks to disguise who we truly are and who God intended us to be. The light of Christ strips away all the trappings of, of this world and everything standing in our way between us and God. Quite honestly, we, we can never truly see ourselves until we see ourselves through the eyes of Christ. And finally, the light in which Jesus brings is a guiding light. If we do not possess the light of Christ, we simply walk in the darkness. And as I said, if you've walked in the darkness, you know that dangers abound. Unseen danger that can cause harm and even death. It is the light of Christ that illuminates our path in this world. It is the light of Jesus that brings order out of chaos. It reveals the glory of God and seeks to guide us into life. We are to have life and to have it abundantly, as the gospel writer writes. To have it eternally. It is this very light and life that Jesus, living in us, that we're called to share with the world in hopes of allowing the world to see the logos, God's wisdom in action. Can you imagine being 
God's wisdom in action? Do you know what that looks like? Do you know what it looks like? It looks like love. It looks like this. A, a grandmother and a grandson visiting the, the zoo for a day. And by the end of the day, they're waiting in line to get his cheeks painted with the tiger's paw. And while waiting for that local artist to, to paint those tiger's paw on their cheeks, a little girl turns to him and says, you've got so many freckles, there's no place to paint. Embarrassed, the boy drops his head and his grandmother kneels down and next to him and says, I love your freckles. I wouldn't change it for, a world, for the world. In fact, when I was a little girl, I really did want freckles. I was jealous of those who did. And the boy looked up, really? Of course, she says. Why, just name one thing that's prettier than freckles. And he thought for a minute, and he looked up into her eyes and said, wrinkles. That's what God's action looks like. God's wisdom in action. When, when you can take a moment like that and turn it around into a loving, teachable moment. I wish that story would have happened to me. It didn't. But it's a good one, right? Do you realize that you have the opportunity to be God's action, to, to be God's wisdom in action, to be his love, to be his hands and feet, to offer that kind of saying to someone else? I wonder if there's someone in your life that needs to hear those words, right? Those words of encouragement, those words of love, those words of, of building you up, those words of, of saying, do you realize how much you're loved? That God would make the heavens and earth to declare his glory, to prove his love for you. And greater than that, to show his love for us, to die for us, yet while we were still sinners. Jesus, Jesus, the light and life of the world. I say expect a miracle this season. Expect a miracle as we allow that life and light to penetrate our hearts, to transform our minds, and to become image bearers for Christ. Amen? Thank you for listening to today's sermon, and please accept our invitation to join us in worship at the Willoughby United Methodist Church in downtown Willoughby. Our Sunday worship times are at 8 o'clock and 10.30 a.m. with fellowship and Sunday school classes between services. We welcome your presence and look forward to meeting you. Have a wonderful week. Background music has been provided by Ben Sound. Welcome to this week's sermon from the Willoughby United Methodist Church. I'd like to uh, invite you to take on a posture of prayer once more.
as we pray for God's Spirit to open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to the message. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you in many different states of mind from a variety of backgrounds amongst a variety of emotions. We come to hear the whisper of your voice. We pray that you would open our minds, our ears, and our hearts to receive the whisper of your voice in the gentle breeze and to hear the message that you have, a message of scandalous love. Help us to take away from this entire service what we need this day. Empower us by your presence. Fill us with your hope. Cause us to love. May the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips be pleasing to you. Amen. I wanted to give you some historical background on Hosea. Hosea is a, the top um, a prophet in the Bible that I chose to uh, choose for this message today. Um, apparently I need a a prayer over my mouth already. Um, anyway, Hosea was not was only the only writing prophet from the northern kingdom. He prophesied during Israel's last days in a time of national expansion and prosperity under Jeroboam II. As often happens during good times, Israel strayed from the Lord who brought them out of Egyptian slavery and chose them as God's covenant people. Israel retained a superficial commitment to the Lord, but in reality, they worshipped the Canaanite gods, relics, idols. They relied on their own economic and political prowess to sustain them. Hosea recognizes such misplaced priorities as idolatry that corrupts all aspects of life. Hosea denounces this as the worst type of infidelity, naming it prostitution. For God to sustain such false witnesses would be contrary to God's word and nature. Therefore, God will make corrections as we see, through discipline and judgment of God's child, Israel. God's ultimate purpose, however, is to restore people to depend fully on the loving Lord who revealed his mercy in the exodus from Egypt and who requires that his children respond by loving others in the same way. Hosea was a preacher, a prophet, really, who lived at a time when religious folks didn't want, did not want to hear the message. Hmm, does that resonate with anybody, I wonder? The Israelites were more interested in worshiping idols than worshiping Yahweh. They were, as the hymn writer put it, 
prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And one day, God told Hosea his, ba- his bachelor days were over. The problem with the wedding announcement was that it came with a dreadful prophecy. His wife would break his heart. Aware of Gomer's promiscuous reputation, Hosea humbled himself in obedience to the Lord. As a godly man, he surely had different hopes for marriage. Those of pursuing a lover who would share not only his heart, but also his faith and convictions. How many times must he have dreamed of late night talks, stolen kisses in the courtyard, and holding hands as they drifted off to sleep together. Instead, he was awakened from his marriage vows to emptiness and abandonment. The Bible doesn't say how or when. All we know is that it happened. But Hosea began to hear rumors, and his heart began to break. His beloved was going off with with other men, He couldn't even be sure that the children she bore were actually his. Hosea, a broken-hearted father, a betrayed husband, and a bewildered preacher, felt like his fragile heart would never recover. And then the final blow. Gomer's wanderings had drawn her into the wrong company. And that's where we pick up our story today in Hosea chapter 3. Which reads this, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another, who is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love their raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too I will be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the later days. This is the very word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Hopefully I'll get there. Is it working? Beautiful. So, imagine this, if you will as I rearrange my stuff right here. Imagine a five-year-old coming home from kindergarten and asking his mom, Mommy, can you stop writing notes on my uh, napkin in my lunch? Can you stop writing I love you on my napkin? Perplexed, the mom asks the little boy, 
well, why? Why would you want me to stop expressing my great love for you? And the little boy looks up and says, because when I'm done eating and I'm cleaning up, it feels like I'm throwing your love away. That's powerful, isn't it? Just think about that for a moment. I'm going to come back to that image time and time again throughout the, throughout the message. The message of God writing a love letter to each one of us. And what do we do with that? Do we, do we cherish it in our hearts or are we quick to throw it away? I can't imagine what Hosea was going through. God told Hosea to do the unthinkable. To go and redeem his wife, Gomer. Gomer was being sold as a slave. Hosea must have cried out, She's thrown my love away. Can you feel the pain there? Can you feel the experience of someone who has been rejected? Why should I have to buy back what is already mine? That's a powerful question, isn't it? Why should, I, why should I have to buy back what is already mine? Hosea asking God of that and God asking that of his people. Can you see the parallel? Hosea, a faithful husband, Gomer, an unfaithful wife, God, God is the faithful lover of our souls. We are often faithless and prone to water, wander, prone to discard his love. Hosea and Gomer's story is the story of God and Israel, and it's also our story. When we, like Gomer, were enslaved, God brought us back, purchased us, ransomed us, we, when we found ourselves stuck in chains that we never intended, chains of insecurity, discontentment, or fear, God freed us. God freed us when we, by our very na nature, threw God's love away. He chose to redeem us. When Hosea bought Gomer back. He redeemed her, and he did so with 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. When God redeemed us, he paid the ultimate price with the blood of his son. Gomer didn't deserve to be redeemed. Her, beha her behavior did not merit such mercy Israel did not deserve God's faithful betrothal. Their unfaithfulness did not merit such mercy. You and I do not deserve salvation. Our sin does not merit such mercy. So then why? Why, why on earth would God redeem us? Why did Jesus choose to pay the ultimate price for our redemption. 
Why does God continue to give his unconditional love to people who continually throw it away? It's not because we deserve it. It's because we, it's because his mercy, his mercy demands it. Aren't you glad God doesn't treat us as our sin deserves? God chose you and loves you. And this love story that I'm talking about is your story, our story, even if we are faithless. Even if we are faithless, because he remains faithful. So imagine for a moment, if you would, God speaking these words into Gomer or into Hosea's ear. Gomer found herself in the wrong crowd seeking seeking pleasure. It ended she ended up on the auction block to become sold in the trade market. And God whispers, go buy her back. And in the form of Jesus, God whispers, go buy them back. The thing about this love story is sometimes we can become just like Gomer, trying to fill a void in our lives, filling it with, well, those things we'll find under the, under the tree on Christmas morning, you know, presents, material things, right? The next latest model of Whatever vehicle you drive always seems to be the best time of year, ho, 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 to buy, to buy a, a Mercedes or, or something else, right? Like that's going to bring us the same kind of peace that Jesus brings. There's other things that we try to fill those voids with. Drugs, alcohol, sex, food, there's a reason why we gain, you know, 10, 20 pounds around the holidays, right? I can, remember, I can remember visiting my Italian side of the family in Philadelphia during the holidays, and, and um, my grandmother, you know, she would guilt me into eating seconds. You don't love me. You've got to eat the bigger boy. You've got to eat. Manje, manje, right? You know what I'm saying? At a certain point, it's like, Grandma, I don't need no more. I'm a big enough boy. You know what I'm saying? But here's the beauty of it. When we find ourselves lost, alone, tired of the same old thing, we find a promise in the Bible. Luke 9, 19, verses 10 that Jesus promises to come and save and, or to seek and to save that which is lost. Can you imagine that? A rescuer coming to pursue us before we even realize we, we are in trouble. That's who God is. Getting back to the, getting back to the, um, the image of that, that 
napkin written by mom, I love you. Here's a different take on on throwing that away. I can remember somewhere between the ages of, of 13 and 18, those wild teenage years, where if I missed the bus, I would ask my, my mom or my dad to, to drop me off a, a good block and a half away from the school because I didn't want to be caught dead in the same vicinity or zip code with them because I, I was embarrassed, like I was afraid or ashamed that they would embarrass me. Am I the only one that suffered from that anxiety? No, thank you, that brave soul, whoever said that, right? There's, there's, a, there's a tendency even to be ashamed before God. I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror in the morning, so often I don't, I don't see what God sees. So often I see things that that make me ashamed, right? But read what Psalm 91.4 says. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Like he's got your back. That's who God is. A God who loves us and brings us out of our lostness and ransoms us, rescues us. And as the, as the hymn writer said, we're prone to wander. Even when life can lead us astray, I love what Psalm 139 says. The more and more I read it, the more and more it, it rises to the top 10 or 20 verses that I that I love to meditate on. It says, even if we go to the farthest side of the world or the other side of the sea, God is there. Even if we were to climb the tallest mountain, God is there. Even if we were to go in the deepest part of the ocean, God is even there. The astronauts that have gone to the moon and back will be the first to tell you that even God is there. Even if we do wander, God is there to guide us home because that's the kind of God he is. Even if we wander, God can bring us home. So if you find yourself still waiting, remember this, God is not finished writing your story and there's beauty ahead. It reminds me of a dear saint that approached me after a sermon a few years ago. Not in this church, it was a different church. But I was talking about the work that God seeks to do in our lives, to transform our every being, our every essence, right? And she goes, Pastor, I just want to tell you, God loves me just the way I am. And I said, amen. And he loves you too much to leave you that way. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the more and more that we get to know God, the more and more that we realize we have a long, long way to go to reach his standard of perfection. Right? 
Have you ever wondered what God sees in you that would cause him to go to such great lengths? Have you? I shared with you about looking in the mirror. So often when, when I look in the mirror, like, I know I don't see the things that God sees. I see my weaknesses. I see, I see my brokenness. I see where I've missed the mark. But you know what God sees? For each one of us, he sees the potential. He sees the potential of who he has created in his image standing before that mirror. He sees the goodness. He sees something of intrinsic value, something worth salvaging, something worth rescuing, something worth renovating, something worth redeeming. He sees you. That's scandalous love. That is scandalous love. That's the message of the whole Bible, isn't it? So throughout the story of Hosea, God tenderly touches your arm and whispers, come home, come home. My love sets you free. When you're tired of striving and wandering, I'll be, I'll be there to draw you to myself and remind you who you are in Christ. That's the message of the whole Bible. At a manger in Bethlehem, God entered the slave market where all of us were putting ourselves on the auction block, prostituting ourselves and our humanity for a lesser life. But on the cross, Jesus paid the full price for our redemption, for our freedom. He brings us back. This is the scandalous love of God. His loving desires to make us his people and the full persons that he intended us to be. God's response to you is the same as it was to Israel. He will heal your unfaithfulness or your faithlessness. He will love you freely and unconditionally. God has written on your very life these words that cannot be wadded up and discarded. I love you. I love you. And I'll prove it to you. He values you so much that he enters into a covenant with you. He redeems you and remains faithful to you. He's holding up his end of the bargain. May we never, ever carelessly throw away what cost God so much. Oh, what love. Amen. I wonder if you would pray with me. It's hard to understand what scandalous love is, Lord. The depths that you would go to to pursue us, to perfect us, to redeem us and to recover what was lost. Help us in this Advent season to be mindful of your beauty, 
your presence and your pursuant love. Help us to to less value the world and what they value and to more value the love letter that you've written in the Bible and on our hearts. Give us the hands to sow sow love. Anoint our tongues to share your message. Give us the eyes to see the beauty in others that, that you see. And help us have the ears to hear the cry of your people. And then give us the courage to, to share that message of hope. That message of scandalous love. That redeeming love. In and through Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon, and please accept our invitation to join us in worship at the Willoughby United Methodist Church in downtown Willoughby. Our Sunday worship times are at 8 o'clock and 10.30 a.m., with fellowship and Sunday school classes between services. We welcome your presence and look forward to meeting you. Have a wonderful week. Background music has been provided by Ben Sound. Welcome to this week's sermon from the Willoughby United Methodist Church. So you may have just witnessed the best part of the whole service right there. I'm not saying that it's all downhill from here, but we need to pray. I would invite you to take on one more posture of prayer as we, as we uh, invite the Holy Spirit to come into this place. Pray that he would open our ears, our minds, and our hearts to receive the blessing of this message today and the whisper of his, vo- of his voice. I pray that the meditation of our hearts and the words of my lips would be pleasing to you. Amen. Good morning. I'm Christopher Liberati, uh, the pastor here at Willoughby UMC. We're glad that you're here this morning. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have such a celebration of a service this morning, uh, acknowledging the servants that have been helping us uh, navigate through this season of transition, and also um, just to be blessed by, by the choir and, uh, and so many other servants. Um, so Jason and, and Kathy would probably uh, uh, throw darts at me if I didn't say this, but... Uh, there's always an open spot in the choir if you can carry a tune, so seek them out afterwards. We're in, our, we're in this third sun, Sunday of Advent, and um, we're uh, starting a, well, we're almost through our sermon series, Christmas is Not Your Birthday. And this week, uh, the title of the sermon is Jesus' Wish List. Now, I can't take credit for, for, uh, for that title, um, because Mike, Mike Slaughter uh, at Gingensburg is the author of the book, Christmas is Not Your Birthday, um, and I want to give credit where credit is due. But we've invited the Holy Spirit into this place, and, and we would pray that um, there is something, something from this service, something from the message, something from the reading of Scripture, something from one of the prayers, something from a piece of music that touches your heart today. 
So I would hope and pray that that would happen. I pick up in, uh, if, your Bible, if you have your Bibles with you, I'll be uh, referencing three passages of Scripture today. The first one is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Then I will be referencing the gospel according to Matthew, and I'll give you that scripture when I get there. And then finally, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, um, and I'll give you that scripture when we get there as well. So if you have your Bible w- with you today, uh, you're going to be turning some pages, which is a good thing, right? All right. So let's jump into 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 11. He writes, For this is the message that you have, that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his his brothers were righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death, and all who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I wonder if you can pick out the power behind that passage. I think throughout his ministry, Jesus made it abundantly clear to his disciples that we cannot separate our relationship with God from our responsibility to serve God's people. Think of it this way. Oswald Chambers writes... Has it ever dawned on you that you're responsible spiritually to God for other people? That's a dawning question, is it not? I wonder how many in this room have been impacted by the ministry and words of Billy Graham. Show of hands real quick. He's a powerful, powerful preacher. And his message was consistent over time. And it was all about the good news of Jesus Christ. He touched millions. He brought millions to the love of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you've ever thought about what kind of impact your life would have on people. Would it have the same impact that Billy Graham's had? Do you ever ponder that? Do you ever think that like you have that potential? Maybe not to fill coliseums, in football stadiums, but you have the potential to have that same deep impact, spiritual impact on everybody you meet. 
We call it, on our staff, we call it the ability to have a divine appointment, and we believe every, every interaction with, with people, no matter who they are, is a divine appointment. Some turn out differently than others, though granted that, but everyone is by a divine appointment or by design. Now, I wonder if, if for a moment, Edward Kimball would have said no to the invitation to being a Sunday school teacher if, if everything, if the course of history would have played out the same way. Does anybody know who Edward Kimball is? Good. You're going to walk away with some, a nugget today. So Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher who helped lead Dwight L. Moody to Jesus Christ. Everybody know who Dwight L. Moody is, right? It just so happens that J. Wilbur Chapman was converted by or introduced to Jesus by Dwight L. Moody during an evangelistic meeting. And it just so happens that Chapman went, in, went on to introduce Billy Sunday to Jesus Christ, who then went on to introduce Mordecai Ham to Jesus Christ, who then went on to, you might be able to guess, introduce Billy Graham to Jesus Christ. Do you have anybody in your life that you can trace back like that's the person that introduced me to Jesus Christ? Do you? I wonder. I think we have those saints here in this church that are teaching Bible, Bible classes, small group classes, that are serving the community, that are missionally outreached and out-focused. They're teaching Sunday school. They're leading VBS like the Knots and so many others, right? Like, like Rebecca, what, what Marcia said is a direct result of somebody seeing God's potential in you and seeing the love of Christ in you, right? Every one of us, every one of us, if we think about it, we have somebody to thank for our spiritual, the beginning of our spiritual journey. So Jesus makes it very clear the importance of not having to separate or, or like, I'm getting all tongue-tied here because I'm getting emotional, but the importance of not separating our love for God and our responsibility of serving others. And I think Jesus taught this time and time again to his disciples. Sometimes he had to, like, call a time out and say this is a teachable moment, right? Which brings us to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 and following. Now, you might know this story. It may sound very familiar to you, and I hope it does. It's a time in Jesus' ministry where he had just gotten the news that his cousin, John, had been beheaded. He was grieving. He was grieving. He was in a, a place of deep pain. But he didn't cast aside his responsibility to be in ministry. It says... In, in, in verse 13, now when Jesus had heard this, 
received the news of hearing that his cousin had been beheaded. He withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Where do you go to grieve? Jesus went to a deserted place. His heart broke. But when the crowds heard, they followed him. They followed him on foot to the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion. There's that responsibility piece. He had compassion for them and he even cured their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place. The hour is now late. Please send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, if that was happening here in Willoughby, the disciples were saying, send them to Fiona's, to Wild Goose, to Willoughby Brewing Company, right? Let them fend for themselves, Jesus. They were tired. They were tired. They were in a moment of fear and panic because the crowds were great. And Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? Like, did you not see the crowd? Like, I know you're, I know you're proclaiming to be God and everything, but like, there's like 15,000 there. And the text, the text says 5,000, but we'll, we'll see where that number expands here in a moment. Right? They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. Somebody packed a lunch. Somebody packed a lunch. Somebody brought something, right? And what they brought, they offered. Bring them here to me, Jesus says. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up into heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled and they took up what was left over they had leftovers they had carry out bags right leftover of broken pieces 12 basketfuls and those who ate were about 5000 men besides the women and children so it's more than just feeding 5000 And the point of that illustration or the point of that miraculous thing is this. Feeding the 5,000, the resources that God uses to multiply and create a miracle to meet the people's needs comes from our own hands. It comes from us. It comes from the, the person that packed a lunch, right? When we obediently release what is in our hands... Jesus blesses it, multiplies it, and then gives it back to us for the purpose of distribution. I didn't get an amen on that. No, thank you. One day I won't have to ask. But think about that for a moment. Jesus, being God, he could have simply said, And the food trucks come on, right? But he didn't. He said, bring me what you have. Bring me what you have. 
and I will bless that. And that'll be enough. Not only will that be enough, but it will be more than enough. You know what I'm saying? You see, it's for the disciples, it's where their faith and their action intersected. Simply put, it's where our faith and our action intersect that miracles can happen through Christ. But if we never, there's a famous word right there, but, but if we never combine our faith with our resources, how can we possibly expect a miracle? I want to re- say that again. If we never combine our faith with our resources, how can we possibly expect a miracle? That but comes with a lot of baggage. Now, I want to I share a quick story, because I love stories, and you all know by now that I love to tell stories. And I'm, don't, I'm not that good at it, but bear with me. So, how many of you have fought the battle of, I mean, offered the gesture of putting Christmas lights on the outside of your house? I kind of gave it away, didn't I? So, my, my wife, uh, she took it upon herself to... Uh, string some, some, some lights, and, and when she got all done, she said, uh, honey, it's not working. And I did a quick assessment and, and looked, and, and uh, I said, did you read the instructions? No. <laughs> like, oh, okay. So, you know, she started at the top of the tree, and, and up at the top of the tree was the, the male pl- part of the plug, the kind of... Down at the bottom was a female plug, and if you know any know anything about electricity, it like needed to be reversed, right? And I tried to tried to point it out. I, I kind of started with "I love you," but right, and you know what she said, "Honey, you want to say what you said? Just make it work." Just make it work. So guess what I did? I made it work. I chose the upper saying, but I love you. Right? You ever see or utilize that kind of language where you know you could start with the bottom, I love you, but? Like when you start it with I love you and then add the but at the end, like, it's like you never said the front part of it. You know what I'm saying? And our faith, you know, think about Jesus for a minute. Like, Jesus didn't say, I love you this much, but, right? He just simply said, but I love you. I love you anyway. And I think about that in this message of what we're called to do and what we're called to be and how often we react with the bottom portion of that statement. God, I'd love to give, but. God, I'd love to serve, but. 
God, I'd love to sing in the choir, but God, I'd love to prepare a meal or go visit with somebody or pray with somebody, but how many buts get in the way? Right? God calls us to a different type of love. I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. That says this on how we are to love. The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work, as it is written he scatters abroad. He gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's the love of God. So often, we, this is how we kind of sow God's love, you know, one seed at a time, logically um, organized, specific, timed, being mindful of what we have. That's our economy, right? Just one seat at a time. Call it frugality. Call it whatever you want. But let me show you God's economy of scales. God sows recklessly, abundantly, not sparing. Think about that for a moment. The, the parable that Jesus taught in the sower sowing the seeds in the four different types of soil. I don't know if we have any farmers out there in the crowd, but if, if you know anything about a farmer, it's all about getting the most seeds planted for the most production, and you can't overseed because it'll crowd each other out. I have a... I have a a uh, former brother-in-law that, that's a farmer, and, and every winter, you know what they do? They go down the fence rows and trim all the trees so they can make sure their, their planters and their combines can get every inch of the soil. In that, in that parable, Jesus says, there's a sower, Jesus, or God, that sows his seed on four different types of soil. Rocky soil. Can you imagine... Wasting seed on rocks, knowing that, that it's not going to grow, or a hard path where, where it'll be eaten up by insects and birds, or not preparing a field, not removing the weeds, just allowing the seeds to be choked out, or the good soil where every seed will will take root and bear fruit 
God's economics are so much different than ours. I would think so much different. Yet, he calls us to be create, uh, courageous. He calls us to be a little reckless in our love. He calls us to give generously. God's currency is generosity. It's a, genero- it's a currency of love. You know what I'm saying? And so we've kind of changed the order of service this morning for a couple of different reasons. I want to invite the choir up to help me because we're about ready to do a bear toss. Um, don't worry. I'm not Baker Mayfield. I can't throw touchdown bombs. Uh, but uh, we're going to pass these uh, teddy bears out because later this afternoon they're going to go out into the community and bless people in, in nursing homes, right? People that can't be here on Sunday. But we want you to be to partner with us, right? It's like Jesus was saying, bring me what you have so we can bless it and send it out and multiply his great love. So there in the front row there's some... Uh, um, quilts or, or prayer shawls too. You, go, you guys go start, start tossing them. Yeah. I mean, handing them. Yeah, there we go. We got some. So. so the hope is everybody will have an opportunity to, to touch one of these bears or one of these prayer shawls. Um, the prayer shawls have been stitched by a group or crocheted. I don't know or knitted, I don't know the correct terminology. Um, But it's been made, yes, made with love, right? Now, I always always love um, delivering these because when I put one of these on, on somebody who's receiving it, you know what they always tell me? They can instantly feel the warmth of God's love. And I think you can feel that because they've been made with love. They've been stitched with love. They've been prayed over with love. And so we also have uh, some communion visitors that are making, that have made these gifts that as they go out into the community uh, and give communion, they also present seasonal gifts. And so I want you to just take for a moment and pour the love that that God has given you into whether it's a teddy bear or a prayer shawl. Like if and if you can't touch something, just raise your hand or 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 you know, not raise your hand like I need one, or or just raise your hand like you're willing to be a part of this movement as we bless these gifts. Gracious and loving God, we pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on these tangible, these tangible pieces of love. We would pray that as people receive them, that they would receive the warmth of your love. As they pray, as they put these prayer shawls over over them, that they would feel your healing touch that as they would embrace 
these teddy bears, that they would be embracing your love for them. We pray for all the servants that are going to go out from this place to be your hands and feet where faith and action intersect, that your blessing would be upon them and that your love would be poured out through them. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, here's the hardest part of what we just went through. You have to give the teddy bears back. <laughs> so we're going to ask the choir to do that. And while and while they're collecting the uh, while they're collecting the teddy bears, we're also also going to invite you to give your tithe or offering to God. As we as we collect that tithe and offering, we believe collectively we can do more as a church community than we can do individually and we are partnering with God and saying yes I want to be a part of the movement of what's going on here at this church I want to be a movement of your love in this community and beyond amen Thank you for listening to today's sermon, and please accept our invitation to join us in worship at the Willoughby United Methodist Church in downtown Willoughby. Our Sunday worship times are at 8 o'clock and 10.30 a.m., with fellowship and Sunday school classes between services. We welcome your presence and look forward to meeting you. Have a wonderful week. Background music has been provided by Ben Sound. Welcome to this week's sermon from the Willoughby United Methodist Church. I'd invite you to stay standing as we read from the Gospel according to John. It's a tradition that I've learned from previous churches that I just think is so beautiful and, and holds reverence to the Gospel writers. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would pour out on us here gathered to bring glory to your name this morning, that you would open our ears, our minds, and our hearts to receive the blessing of this message and the whisper of your voice. May the meditation of our hearts and the words of my lips be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. From the gospel according to John, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. In fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned, for I am coming to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
for those of you who are visiting today, my name's Christopher Liberati. I'm the senior pastor here at Willoughby UMC, and it's my privilege to have been appointed here. And um, as I said earlier, it's, uh, it's my first advent with, uh, with this church, and, and I'm having the adventure of a lifetime. I'm enjoying every minute of it. Well, most every minute, you know. So I wonder if what we, what we uh, read, we truly believe. I mean, that Jesus would call us to do greater things than he. I mean, are you buying that? I mean, Jesus raised people from the dead, right? Like, I don't know if I can top that one. I don't even know if I can do that one, right? But I wonder, I wonder if it's true. Ephesians 2.10 says this, that we were created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's already prepared us to do great things, the things that Jesus has talked about. And Jesus makes a bold statement here in the Gospel of John that Paul builds upon in his letter to the church at Ephesus, that we are empowered and even destined to do great things according to Jesus, to do things greater than he did. So I ask again, do you believe that you're created in Christ to do greater things that, than he did? Oh, okay. we got a couple believers in the house. If we've been given, if we've been given all authority in Jesus, why is it so hard for us to share our faith? and truth in Jesus Christ to others? I think that's a tough question to ask, a tough question to reflect on, and a tough question, if we were honest, to answer. My guess is we tend to back down out of fear, or maybe we might crack under the first sight of criticism. Does that ring true to anybody here? But by whose authority do we carry out this mission, I wonder? What right do we have to disrupt disrupt others' lives? What makes our beliefs more important and unstoppable? The short answer, Jesus, right? I always heard that uh, um, if you're in a Bible study and, and somebody asks you a question, the answer is always Jesus, right? That's the short answer. Like Jesus, we can now make disciples. We can now baptize. It's by his authority that we can do all of, the, all of these things. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's Jesus, not me. Uh, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Like it, that, that passage right there is a transference of power, of his power from him to us. Of course, this great commission and, and the Jesus promises us to carry it out is a gift, a gift of all gifts, in order to, to, to fulfill this great commission. And it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
One passage in, in particular tells us that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 1.8, we're, we're shown why. For the power, power of witnessing to others. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, even Willoughby. Emphasis added on Willoughby. And surrounding communities. So why is it then that we won't witness to others, or we don't? Let me share with you some of the facts that researchers have uncovered. They start with this. 90% have failed in witnessing attempts in the past. So, you know, nobody likes to fail, nor to receive criticism. So if we've stepped out in faith and it hasn't been received well, we're, we're not likely to do it again. But I want you to be encouraged because... Have you ever heard the name D.L. Moody? He was a great evangelist. After one of his presentations once, he spoke with a woman who didn't like his method of evangelism. She went on and on for several minutes criticizing his message and the way in which he delivered it. And after several minutes of listening to her, he confessed to her, and I quote, I really don't like my delivery all that much either. What method, what method do you use? And she replied that she didn't have one. And his response was, which I love, then I like mine better than yours. <laughs> right? I love that response, don't you? Moody got right to the heart of the matter. God created each one of us to tell our story in conjunction with his story. The only way we can tell it is to tell it. And the truth of the matter is, each one of us are going to tell that story differently because we're created differently and our story is differently. But every one of our stories aligns or falls into place with his story. So be of courage. Be bold. Don't be afraid to tell your story and how it relates to God's story. Number two, some, some don't feel they have enough biblical wisdom to be effective. And I would say this, it's not about proving or disproving the Bible. If you get stumped, simply allow that, that moment to be an invitation to the other person to explore what the scripture says together. Or if you don't feel like you're at a place to be able to do that, simply say, that's a really good question. Let me get back to you. And then follow up on it. Because people actually love when you follow up and, and bring them an answer, right? Now, I will caution you this. It may lead to another, another question, right? But guess what? You've started a conversation. And you're studying the Bible. It's a win-win. It is. Number three, sometimes... We have a preference to leave it to the paid professionals. So Billy Graham and Leighton Ford um, have worked together. I don't know if you know Leighton Ford. He's a great biblical scholar. I've read some of his books. But I'm, I'm assuming that you all know Billy Graham, right? 
So Leighton Ford writes this or tells this story about a crusade that he was in with Billy Graham. And he, was, he writes that he was speaking at an open-air crusade in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And Billy Graham was to speak the very next night. So Billy Graham arrived a day early. He came incognito and sat on the grass at the rear of the crowd just to hear the message, right? Because he was wearing a hat and dark glasses, no one recognized him for who he was. And directly in front of him sat an elderly gentleman who seemed to be listening intently to Leighton Ford's presentation. Leighton writes, When I invited people to come forward as an open sign of commitment, Billy decided to do a little personal evangelism. He tapped the man on the shoulder and asked, Would you like would you like to accept Christ? Would you like to move forward? I'll gladly walk down to the front with you. The old man looked at him up and down, thought for a moment, and then said this, Nah, I think I'll just wait till the big gun, big gun comes tomorrow. <laughs> Leighton went on to write that him and Billy had had several good chuckles over that incident. Unfortunately, it underlines how in the minds of many people that evangelism is the task that is left for the big guns or the paid staff or professionals, not the little shots as Leighton Ford writes. And I want to say this, if you're waiting for the right moment or the big shot to come along, you might just miss out on an awful lot With the power and authority of Jesus, any disciple becomes a big shot, truly. If you are here this morning, I want you to be encouraged because you could be the very next big shot that bears witness to Christ for the sake of another person. I have a big shot in my life. He was my Bible study leader, my small group leader. We stay connected touch base all the time. And if it wasn't for him, I don't know if I would not only be here, but be here, if you know what I'm saying. He's a big shot in my life. Doesn't have a fancy theological degree hanging on his wall, but he has Christ in his heart. And I think that is the most important qualification for anybody to tell a story is that you have Christ in your life and in your heart. Finally, the researchers point out that it's a faulty assumption that we shouldn't impose our faith on others. And I think if I could speak for Jesus on behalf of Jesus, he might just say this, go, impose. You know what I'm saying? So when Jesus said that he would give us another advocate, he was making a profound, very profound statement. You see, in the Greek language, there are two words for another. There's heteros and alos. Heteros meaning of another kind. It's like if I decided to give out apples today, right? And if I were to hold up a red delicious apple and I'm going to say I'm going to hand out apples, but I give you all golden delicious apples, right? It's, 
it's of the same, it's still an apple. An apple is an apple, right? But it may taste a little different. Or how about this? I, I decide to give myself a Red Delicious and I give you all Granny Smith's. Like there's a difference, right? So that's the, that's the difference of heteros. But here, Jesus uses the word alos. And what that means, it means the very same kind. That means if I'm getting a, a red delicious, everybody is giving, getting a red delicious. I'm making you hungry, aren't I? Unfortunately, we're not going to be handing out apples after the, after the service. But you know where to get them. And what that, what's so important about this is the fact that Jesus is saying the advocate that he is promising us is himself found in and through the Holy Spirit. It's like having Christ in us. Not like having Christ in us, but it's having Christ in us. Imagine that, Christ in you. Christ's authority in you. Christ's patience in you. I need to read that one again. Christ's patience in you. Christ's power in you. And most of all, Christ's love in you. You know what I'm saying? Now, does that mean we always get it right? No. When he was the pastor of the Methodist Church in Scarborough, William Sangster had an eccentric member who tried to be zealous for Christ. He worked at a barber shop. And when his customers would come in, for a, especially the men, for a clean shave, he would get them all lathered up. And then he'd be poised with his straight razor. And he says, are you ready to meet your God? You know, approach is one thing, but delivery is another, right? Can you imagine the, the amount of customers that ran out of there, lathered up? That guy's crazy. Honestly, we might want to think through our approach a little bit better than that poor saint. But Christ helps us to witness to others by giving himself to us in the form of the Holy Spirit. And as we allow Christ's peace to rule in our hearts, we can start to clothe ourselves with five components or adornments that empower our witness. And they are compassion and kindness, humility and meekness and patience. So let's take a look at these five adornments and how, how they might fit into place. Compassion is putting yourself in another's shoes. Compassion literally means to suffer together. Among emotion researchers, it's defined as the feeling that arises when you're confronted with another's suffering and feel motivated to relieve that suffering. In Christ, we go through a tuning process where our level of compassion is at first turned on and then turned up. It's what makes our hearts pliable and able to understand and even read into each other's pain. Mike spoke of that earlier in lighting the Advent wreath. Not the wreath, but the candle. 
Next is kindness. Kindness has to do with encouraging others. Imagine kindness in this way. Let's say you have a child at home that brings home their report card and there's all kinds of A's and one C minus on it. You with me? Anybody ever do that? Like, I was lucky to get a C minus, let alone anything above there. But our first reaction, isn't it to, uh, to ask the question, why the C minus? Why couldn't you do pull an A like all the other classes? It seems that way anyway. But kindness, in some sense, would celebrate the overall effort. It would celebrate the C minus with the rest of the A's. In a sense, I think we've become a negatively focused society. I mean, just turn on the news, and if you find a positive news report, let me know, because I haven't found one yet. As parents, we're prone to have a critical eye because we have a vested interest, right? We want to raise our children to succeed. But don't you think Jesus does too? Clothing ourselves with kindness can eliminate some of our critical nature. Next, we need to put on humility, seeking to put others before yourself. A man received a promotion as a, as a vice president in his company that he worked for. The promotion, needless to say, went straight to his head. And for weeks on end, he would brag to anyone who would listen everyone who was in his path that he was now a vice president. His bragging, however, came to an abrupt stop when his wife, so embarrassed by his behavior, said this, Listen, Bob, it's not that big of a deal. These days, everybody's a vice president. Why, they even have a vice president of peas down at the supermarket. Somewhat deflated, Bob rang the local supermarket to find out if it was true. The person answered the phone. Bob asked, can I speak to the vice president of peas, please? And the response was, of fresh or frozen. (laughs) You know what I'm saying here, right? Paul gives us another good example of humility. He focused his life on Jesus' idea of a New Testament saint. That is, not one who merely proclaims the good news or the gospel, but one who becomes the broken bread and poured out wine in the hands of Jesus Christ for the sake of others. So I would ask you, how would you rate your humility scale today? Have you become broken bread and poured out wine for another? Broken bread poured out wine. That's what humility is about. Next is meekness, which is gentleness. Gentleness means recognizing the world around us is fragile, especially other people. It's easy in recognizing our own capacity to do harm, but sometimes it's harder to choose to be tender soft-spoken, soft-hearted, and careful. When we're gentle, we touch the world in ways that protect and preserve it. 
Parenting, I'll admit, can be one of the toughest jobs to do in life. But just because I'm a dad doesn't mean I have to be tough all the time. At the age of five, our son started to test boundaries. Most days we could work around this and move, move on with life, but there would come a time where he would draw a line in the sand. A battle would ensue. And what I noticed, towering over him at over six feet, is it was hard to reach him. And then I took a different approach. I actually got down on one knee, got down to his level, and looked at him eye to eye. And something changed in that moment. The communication breakdown was gone. Now, what's interesting about that illustration is it wasn't Anthony that changed. It was me, right? That's what we're called to do. We're called to be gentle. We're called not to invoke our way. We're called to meet people where they're at. And that's how we can be effective in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And finally, we're to have patience. Patience is the willingness to bear the unpleasant. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that anyone should perish. Did you pick up on that? He's patient with us because he doesn't want to lose a thing. He doesn't want to lose any one of us. With that in mind, we should probably try to look deep within ourselves and remember how wonderfully God has dealt with us. Think for a moment the knowledge that God has loved each one of us beyond all understanding or limits. That alone should compel us to go out into the world and love others in the same way. Have you ever found yourself in a state of irritation with an unusually difficult person? If you have, you might just start to think about how disagreeable you are with God as opposed to how disagreeable they are with you. Where do you fit in on the equation? Are you unusually difficult? Or are you one of those EGR people, we call them in the business, you know, extra grace required? I think, I, I think back about my Bible study teacher in the first time, first few months that he met me. I was an EGR person, right? Somebody who needed extra grace. Having patience allows the identity of Jesus to grow in us. Are you prepared to be identified so closely with Jesus that his life, his sweetness, will be continued, continually poured out through what you say and what you do? Neither natural love nor God's divine love will remain or grow unless it is nurtured. Love is spontaneous, but it has to be maintained through discipline. And that is where patience comes in, quite frankly. George Sweeting, in his book, The No Guilt Guide for Witnessing, tells of a man by the name of John Currier, who in 1949 was found guilty for murder and sentenced to life in prison. 
Later, he was transferred to a, and paroled to a work, work farm in, near Nashville, Tennessee. And in 1968, Currier's sentence was terminated and a letter bearing the good news was sent to him. However, John never saw the letter, nor was he told anything about it. Life on the farm kept going, hard and without promise or a future. Yet John kept going, doing what he was told even after the farmer had passed away. Ten years went by, and a state patrol officer learned about Courier's plight, found him, and told him that his sentence had been terminated. He was a free man. Can you imagine the patience he must have had? Sweeting concluded this story by asking this, Would it matter to you if someone sent you an important message, the most important message of your life, And year after year, the urgent message was never delivered. We who have heard the good news and experienced freedom through Christ are responsible, responsible to proclaim this message to others. Are we doing all we can to make sure that people hear it and receive it? There's tremendous urgency, I believe, when it comes to carrying out the Great Commission. Tremendous urgency in telling our story and telling his story. I wholeheartedly believe that that's why Jesus gave us such a great and powerful gift in the Holy Spirit. The gift of Alas, of the same kind, of Christ himself. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Oh, friends, I am so tired of weak Christianity. Let us be all out for Christ. Let us give no uncertain sound or unwavering conviction. If the world wants to call us fools, let them. So be it. It's, the only, for, it, it's only for a little while anyway when, when the crowning day will come. Thank God that we have the privilege to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The command statement from Jesus is the Great Commission. It's to make disciples. It's a command. It's not a request. Now, we're to do it not with a razor in hand, right? But we're to do it nonetheless. We are to make learners of Christ. Remember back to Acts 1.8. You have the ability in Christ, powered by the Holy Spirit, to accomplish this task, to be able to tell your story. So how do we begin? Well, first, we have to become a disciple ourselves, accepting Christ and then learning about Christ. We need to set the example by being a learner. I've got news for you. Not a single one of us in this room knows it all about the Bible. If you do, raise your hand. Notice I didn't raise mine either, and I've got a theological degree. I'm still learning. I'll be honest with you. I take issue with people who who don't participate in, in Bible studies or small groups who claim to be disciples. 
I say, where's your evidence? Even as a pastor, I still attend Bible studies. I try to lead our staff through devotions. I pay attention because the most amazing thing happens while we're in these groups. I learn something new. Or I'm reminded of Scripture that for some reason or some way is useful throughout the week. It's a matter of sustaining life. Life is a matter of building. Each of us have the opportunity to build something. A secure family, a good reputation, a career, a relationship with God. But some of those things, not the last, but that some of those things will disappear due to financial losses, natural disasters, or other unforeseen difficulties. So what are we to do? Daniel Webster offers this advice, saying, and I quote, If we work on marble, it will perish. If we work on brass, time will efface it. If we rear temples, they will crumble to dust. But if we work on our more immortal minds, if we imbue them with high principles, with just fear of God and love for others, then we engrave on those tablets something which time cannot efface and which will brighten and brighten to all eternity. Thanks be to God. So I offer this as a sign of being in Christ. Jesus' words, if you love me, Obey my commands. The Lord wants our desires and obedience to his commands. And I say this, when in doubt, just love. Just love. T.H. Huxley, a well-known agnostic, was with a group of men at a weekend house party. And on Sunday morning, the majority of the men were getting ready to prepare and go to church. So he approached one of the men who had known, was known for his high Christian character. And he said, and I quote, suppose you stay at home and tell me why you're a Christian. And the man he was addressing, knowing that he couldn't match wits with Huxley, hesitated. But the agnostics said gently, I don't want to argue with you. I just want to tell, I just want you to tell me simply what this Christ means to you. And the man did. And when he was finished, there were tears in Huxley's eyes as he said this, and I quote, I would give my right hand if only I could believe that. We can't be afraid to tell the story. Tell you the truth, there are people in this community in the surrounding communities, in this world, who are begging to hear why you are here on Sunday mornings, why you believe in Christ, and quite honestly, why the why might just bring them to tears too. You know what I'm saying? Jesus calls us to make a, take a different path, an illuminated path by his Holy Spirit. I wonder, could you, would you join him on this path? Pray with me. The gracious and loving God, you do give us the greatest gift of all, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Give us the courage and strength to articulate our story and how it aligns with your story.
the joy that we have in knowing you and the love that we have received from your grace. Help us to be able to tell the story. And we pray that when we do, that there would be ears to hear, tears to flow, an affirmation from you that we are doing your will and following your commands. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon, and please accept our invitation to join us in worship at the Willoughby United Methodist Church in downtown Willoughby. Our Sunday worship times are at 8 o'clock and 10.30 a.m. with fellowship and Sunday school classes between services. We welcome your presence and look forward to meeting you. Have a wonderful week. Background music has been provided by Ben Sound.